This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and today we are going to explore the concept of academic freedom. And we are doing this with philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota, and he joins us monthly for a segment called Philosophical Currents, where we get a philosophical perspective on a big news story. Jack, thanks for joining us today. I'm happy to be here, and uh, it's a few weeks late, but uh, Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you. A big story that has gotten a lot of coverage in press around the world, really, is a former adjunct professor, Erica Lopez-Prater, and she had her teaching contract not renewed following accusations of Islamophobia. This after she showed an image of a painting uh, that included the Prophet Muhammad, which many Muslims say goes against the central tenet of Islam, the worship of God alone. The idea there being that if there are images of Muhammad, people would worship him instead of God. So we will start here with these accusations of Islamophobia. Does this constitute Islamophobia? I don't think it does. And this is actually a really strange case because the professor actually did everything right. The professor warned the students that she was going to show it. She talked about it again and again and again. And it's an art history class, so it's it's imagery. And she told the students that if anyone wanted to leave, that they were free to leave, that they wouldn't be penalized in any way, that uh, they wouldn't be, I don't disadvantaged in any way. It was very, very clear what she was doing. And the complaining student decided to stay, saw it, and then complained. And so there is the larger question of Islamophobia. And then there's the more specific question of what can a teacher do in their mm-hmm. class? How's the professional and the proper and the respectful way to do it? Well, let's now, the start thing- with the larger one then. Okay, so the so Islamophobia is a shorthand term that is used to refer to anti-Muslim sentiment and anti-Muslim activities. And it's come into popular usage because, of course, with current political discussions, with migration, with all sorts of shifting in world populations, there are many more Muslims in Muslim minority countries. So if you're a Muslim in the United States, there are many more Christians than there are. If you're a Muslim in Germany, there are many more Christians, right? It's usually just Christians and Muslims. And the question then becomes, how much do you allow a minority religion to worship and how much do you respect and how do you talk about and how do you treat practitioners of that religion or the religion itself? In the United States, basically, we say people are free to do anything that they want to do as long as it doesn't harm anyone else and as long as it doesn't force anyone else to adhere by their standards. So if you insult someone who's Muslim because they're Muslim, if you make fun of Islam, if you assault someone on the street, that's Islamophobia. But the teacher didn't actually do that. What the teacher basically said was, if you are Muslim and you don't want to look at this painting, I'm not going to make you. But 
just because you're Muslim and don't approve of it doesn't mean that other people who don't feel that way, maybe they're more liberal Muslims or maybe they're not Muslim at all, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to see it. And that's the weird claim of the administration. The weird claim of the administration is that everyone in the class and the teacher especially should follow Muslim precepts. And if they don't, then they're Islamophobic. And that's just weird. Can you see the flip side of this argument, though, that it is an insult to her faith that she would show this image, even if those other students aren't Muslim, if it is uh, strictly forbidden or at least seriously frowned upon? Could that not be considered an insult and therefore fits under that category of Islamophobia. Well, let me ask you an analogous question. If the cafeteria in Hamlin serves bacon, is it an insult to Jews? If there is an activity on Easter Sunday, is that an insult to Christians? Right. The idea is that people get to make these decisions for themselves. And if the student wanted a school that would be entirely within Muslim principles, where all students followed the Muslim way of life, then they should go to a Muslim school. And there are plenty of religious schools around the world that follow religious precepts. Um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Liberty University. Liberty University, it's not Muslim, it's Christian, but people who want to be, who live a very conservative Christian life go to Liberty University so that they can be among students who do that. And so if you think that the class has the responsibility to follow Muslim precepts, then you think that the school also shouldn't serve bacon or shellfish or anything like that. Now, what does it mean to respect another religion? It means to respect it enough to put the information out there, to warn them, to accommodate students. That's a key higher education term, to accommodate, to accommodate students who need something else. So on Ramadan, uh, teachers have to be sympathetic to the fact that their Muslim students are very hungry because they have to fast from sunrise to sunset. On Jewish high holidays, if there's a test or if there's an assignment, uh, I and, and other teachers have to make allowances for students who are going to be absent. That's what it means to accommodate. And she did that. Mm -hmm. She respected the religion. She respected the student. She gave the student every out. But she decided to continue her curriculum, a curriculum, by the way, and a decision, by the way, that has been supported by virtually every major Islamic organization in the country. Muslims across the country and Muslim organizations across the country have, have said she did nothing wrong. This painting is incredibly important in the history of Islam because it's at this point where Islam starts to change and starts to prohibit images of the prophet. And in fact, Christianity has a very similar uh, moment in time in the Netherlands in the late 1600s. There was a period called the iconoclasm where the Protestants broke into all the Catholic churches and started ripping off all of the, the symbols and the paintings because they felt that under the Protestant way of doing things, that there should be no imagery because imagery was idolatry and churches should be bare, right? Which is why Protestant churches look the way they do right now. And so do you think it's okay that the Protestants invaded all the Catholic churches and did that? Do you think it's okay that Islam should declare 
what non-Muslims should do, just, you know, and equally, we shouldn't say non-Muslims shouldn't say what Muslims should do. Everyone should get the choice and students in an education environment should be accommodated so that they're not disadvantaged for their religious beliefs. Who decides where to draw that line? Well, that's the question, right? That's the philosophical question. And as a general rule, the teacher draws the line. This is what academic freedom means. Academic freedom means that the teacher and the researcher, the professor in a university case, uh, gets to decide the parameters of what they're going to teach and how they're going to teach it. Now, there are checks and balances. There's a, a what we would call it in political philosophy, a principle of redress. And that's what the student did. You can complain. You can complain to the chair. You can complain to the dean. You can complain to the president. And then when there's a complaint, there is a process that you follow and People are talked to, emails are written, and then eventually, if it's serious enough, uh, panels are, you know, impaneled, and there's massive discussions about whether someone did something that crossed the line, that was unprofessional. But there is a process, and one of the things that happened here was that the process wasn't followed. The student hmm. complained, and the president, the the leadership of the university just fired her out of hand. They say they, they didn't renew her, but that's technically a technicality. Technically not fired. Yeah, right, she right. Was not re- her contract was not renewed. That's not the same exactly as being fired. It's not, you know, it is technically not the same, but it is in consequence the same because if she has had this job, and I don't know how long she's been at Hamlin, but if she's had this job for 10 years and they say to her, you know, we're not going to renew you, see you later, the effect is the same. So either way, right, If you're not going to renew someone, you're not going to renew them for cause, right? Now, that cause may be budget, right? We don't have the money. Mm -hmm. Or that cause may be someone better came along. But in this instance, it's very clear that that cause was you did something wrong in class. And the process wasn't followed. Well, that brings us to kind of the central point of the conversation that we want to have today, the difference here between the contract not being renewed and being fired could be uh, similar to what would happen to her. She's an adjunct professor uh, versus someone who is a tenured professor. So just for anyone who doesn't know, what does it mean to be a tenured professor? And then we'll go into why those protections matter and how this process would have been different. So to be tenured is to have basically a permanent job. The assumption and the promise is that you will be renewed every year unless there is serious cause to fire you. And if there is serious cause, there has to be a very significant procedure that's followed and, and it, you know, it has to, you have to have committed a felony or you have to have not shown up for work for a month or something like that. Being a bad professor uh, isn't necessarily a good reason. And the folks, the tenured folks I know who have been fired or forced to retire, there have been years long processes of document that. Now, so tenure is a promise of renewed employment and for life, basically. This exists to protect professors. It exists to let professors have leadership roles at universities. And it 
exists so that professors can free themselves from political constraints Mm -hmm. and from social pressures to pursue their research and their teaching. And that's the key thing. That's what academic freedom uh, means. It means the ability to pursue your research and to teach as you see best as an expert in a way that you think best represents and is best for your discipline and your expertise. When you say protect professor, are you being specific to political influences? Not just, but that's a big part of it. So let's take a step back for a second. What's the purpose of a university? The purpose of a university is to create and disseminate knowledge. I'll explain what that means in just a second. Lots of people think the purpose of a university is to make people job ready, employment ready. That's not the purpose of a university. That might be a purpose of a particular course. It might be the reason why a student goes to, to college. But the job of a university is to explore the world, to explore nature, to explore the human experience, to understand engineering, to, to, to do all the things that revolve around knowing stuff. That's why we call it creating knowledge, because what we know now, we don't know now what we're going to know in six years. We don't know now what we're going to know in 10 years. We don't know what's going to turn out wrong in five or 10 years. So the job of a university is to engage in research and to come up with the best answers so far and then disseminate or pass that information on to the world, specifically students and classes. But also that's why we write papers. That's why we publish in journals. That's why we talk to the newspapers. That's why I'm on this show right now, because as we learn stuff, we don't want to keep that stuff to ourselves. We want to bring that stuff mm-hmm. out for everyone to benefit. Universities are based on the assumption that knowledge is a benefit to the to, to humanity and that our job is to contribute to the discovering or the creation of that knowledge. Are you saying that your teaching is actually secondary? to the research that you would do as a professor? Blanket statement? <laughs> it's it's a great question because it's a really weird job. And it's a really weird job because the thing that you are evaluated on is not the thing you spend the most time on. And what I mean by that is traditionally a professor has three roles in the university. They teach They research and then they do what's called service, which is they sit on committees and they uh, advise clubs and they do stuff, you know, to, to keep the institution working. We spend most of our time teaching and we spend most of our energy teaching and most people encounter us as teachers. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to evaluate us, which we're evaluated every year, teaching is the least of it. They want to look at our research. They want to look at what we've done, how prestigious, uh, how productive we are, how prestigious our work is. Why? Because once you have a basic competence in teaching, there's nothing else to say about it. If you are a horrendous teacher and you can't do the job, then that gets people's attention. But other than that, the difference between a good teacher, a great teacher, and a mediocre teacher, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter for salary. It doesn't matter for retention. It doesn't matter for anything. Once you are a basically competent teacher, that gets left alone. Mm -hmm. What gets you 
raises, what gets you merit pay increases, what gets you attention, what gets you social and political capital, what gets you power in a, at a university is how much research you do and tied in with that, depending on, on the area, how much grant money you, you bring in, right? Those two things are, mm-hmm. are, are part and parcel of the same thing. So I have spent my life being evaluated as a researcher. Now, I once got the uh, university teaching award for being one of the best teachers at the university, and I got a little prize, and I have a plaque in my office, and it's wonderful. But, you know, that happened once. It happened 10 years ago or something like that, and then I moved on. But every single year, every conversation I have with an academic, it's like, oh, what are you working on? Where have you published? Mm -hmm. What's your current book on? That's what we get evaluated on. And so... Even though people think of us as college teachers, what we are are researchers who also interface with people whom we explore ideas with, if that makes sense. Does the process of achieving a tenured position then possibly switch the pressure from outside political forces to the political or administrative forces of the university. If you want tenureship, you will publish along these lines that we are trying to put forward. There is certainly pressure to do that. And when you are on the tenure track but non-tenured, there is pressure for you to do a certain kind of work. Now, depending on how the university is structured, depending on the administration, that can change. But it's actually a little weird. I'll use myself as an example. What ends up happening is the first five years, because tenure you go up for tenure in your sixth year. The first five years, you end up working on your dissertation stuff. You've written this, basically this book to get your PhD. Um, or if you're an artist, you, you've created all this work to get your MFA, your Master of Fine Arts, and, and, and there's Doctors of Education and other things. But I'll stick with PhD. You spend all this time working on the stuff in your dissertation because it's the easiest stuff to publish and it's what you know the most about because you want to publish a lot and good quality as soon as possible so that you can get tenure. Once you get tenure, you get to choose for yourself what you're going to work on. Some people change topics completely. Some people have secondary interests. Some people continue on the same work. You know, when, once I got tenure, I continued on my political philosophy, but then I also started doing public philosophy and started working with uh, Prairie Public, right? That was immediately after tenure because it's very, very hard to get academic credit for the stuff that you and I do. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> At the same time, because your department, because your dean, because your president has to approve and the board of uh, the state board has to approve your tenure, if you're a troublemaker, if people don't like you, if you uh, are causing turmoil, if you're not doing a good job, that's when they can fire you. They can fire you up to any point. They could not renew your contract, exactly what happened to the teacher in, in the question, and they can stop you from getting tenure. And because academic politics is often gross and, and a lot like high school, there's a period I always call it uh, the pre-tenure spank. <laughs> and it's when you, the year before you go up to tenure, if there are faculty that don't like you, they start being jerks mm. and they start 
putting pressure on you and they start trying to manipulate to do things because it's the last time they have power over you. Now, imagine you're doing controversial research. I work on the foundations of capitalism. I work on Adam Smith. I work on the role of justice and, 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 and the economy. That's a very short version. The stuff that I do, it has one foot in the conservative free market world and one foot in the liberal progressive world. And so there are some things that I write that mm. liberals get incredibly angry at. And there are some things that I write that conservatives get really angry at. And so I am constantly balancing out criticisms and personal attacks about my work. And if I let that overwhelm me, mm. then I stop doing my work and I can't do my job. So that's what tenure is for. Tenure is to protect you from every kind of social and political influence so that you can focus on your job of doing research to add to human-wide knowledge. And the fact that somebody doesn't like what you do or say is irrelevant, although they can respond, they can write op-eds, they can write papers and you know, someone like me, and this is true of basically every academic, our, our, our career is writing a paper, someone telling you why you're wrong, writing another paper <laughs> saying why you're right, someone else writing another paper why you're wrong. If you don't like being criticized and if you don't like being rejected, academia is not for you. Do you think that a tenured professor would have been fired for the same actions as this adjunct professor? Almost certainly not. But if they had, it would have been the result of a long process. And because they couldn't rely on the technicality of not being renewed, it would be very, very easy to sue them uh, because they violated academic freedom and they violated the, the procedure at the university. This is why that technicality is actually relevant. If you are fired for lack of cause – and this is different in a right-to-work state, but that's an, also another conversation. If you are fired for lack of cause, then you can sue. If you're not hired for lack of cause, it's much harder to sue. And she doesn't have that kind of power. And so it's going to be harder for her to win the lawsuit. We're visiting today with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota. And we are discussing academic freedom today and how academic freedom can change depending if you are in secondary or higher education or within higher education, whether you are an adjunct or a tenured professor. This in response to a Hamlin University adjunct professor not getting her contract renewed after showing an image of the Prophet Muhammad, you brought up the lawsuit, and she is in the process of suing Hamlin, and uh, this she is saying that they have damaged her professional and personal reputation and subjected her to religious discrimination. How easy is it to prove that your professional and personal reputation has been damaged? That's a really interesting question, and it points to a very difficult gap in our culture. If someone calls you racist, there is no accepted way for you to argue that you're not. You can't 
point to all of your friends who are, let's say, if you're white and they're and and your friends are black, because then people say, oh yeah, yeah, some of my best friends are black, right? You um, if you if you point to having an interest in black culture, if you if you know, how do you? Defend yourself from not being racist. It's the same thing if someone calls you homophobic. It's the same thing if someone calls you Islamophobic. We're at a point in time where we are very sensitive, rightly so, about diversity and pluralism. But there's no way to counter the accusations because often the people who are accusing you have a certain kind of moral authority because maybe they are of the group that, that, that you're supposedly disliking or maybe they have power or, or maybe they just want to make trouble, right? So she was called Islamophobic. She wasn't even called unprofessional, right? She wasn't fired for being unprofessional. She wasn't fired for even teaching poorly. She's fired for Islamophobia. How does someone counter that? Would it be okay if she were married to a Muslim? Would it be okay if she went to mosques on her spare time? I don't know how you do that. Now, an adjunct's job is very, very hard. What it means to be an adjunct is that you are hired per course. There's no long-term contract. There's not a salary. You get money for teaching a class. Uh, it's piecework, and that's all you get. And and most adjuncts have really, really hard lives. I was an adjunct for a few years before I got my first permanent position. Very little money, no benefits, and no job security. So she's probably an adjunct at Hamlin and other universities. And she is probably looking for other jobs. Who is going to hire to teach art history, this art historian who has made headlines across the world? Who is going to hire someone who is only going to bring trouble? Mm -hmm. So it's hard to prove you're not Islamophobic, and it's hard to prove that you should have gotten a job. That's the difficulty she's in, and thankfully I'm not on, I'm not the judge and I'm not the jury uh, involved in the lawsuit because she is at a tremendous disadvantage because she has to talk about the fact that she would have X, Y, or Z, and hypotheticals are very hard to argue from. Do you think that this damages Hamlin's reputation? I think it humiliated Hamlin. I think it. And I think that this is why the the president backpedaled a little and used a lot of academic gibberish in there in 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 Hamlin's statement of response, including talking about leaders being people of color and women and all that kind of stuff. They took they took all the tropes, right? It has destroyed because it makes them look ridiculous, and it makes them look ridiculous because they did something stupid, and they are unwilling to say they made a mistake. What did they do? What stupid? What they did was they took a professor who did everything right and said she was a monster because she didn't make one student's religious beliefs govern everybody else's belief. A university is a place of tremendous freedom. It's a tr place of tremendous freedom for students to explore, to explore themselves, to explore the world, to, to explore and make mistakes, right? I mean, this is – people talk about the phrase safe spaces and, and make fun of it. But my class is a safe space because if a student asks me a question that I'm offended by, I don't yell at them. 
I take it seriously. I respond. I would never say to a student, this is offensive, get out of my class. If I was horrendously, horribly offended, if the student did something intentionally rude, I'd talk to them after class. I'd try to have a conversation. But, you know, students are there to make mistakes. I always tell my students, my students come up to me, in the beginning when they're taking their first philosophy classes and they say, I've never taken a philosophy class before. I'm really worried. I don't know how to do this. And I always say, look, if you knew how to do this, you wouldn't need to take the class, right? <laughs> the purpose of the class is to teach you how to do it. And if you're in class, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to say stupid things. You're going to use the wrong word. And the class has to accept that as part of the process, as does the teacher. So even, even if the professor here had made a mistake, or even if the complaining student had made a mistake, the job was to deal with the mistake and to teach people. So academic freedom is, is a freedom that is universal for everyone on campus. And Hamlin blew that. They just, they just made a terrible mistake and they're too proud and, and egotistical to, to, to admit it. But let me, let me give you a, a sort of graphic example of how this works in my career and what kind of protection you need. So we offer religion courses as well as philosophy courses. And for years and years and years, I would go into the intro religion class to talk about Judaism. And I wouldn't go in as a professor of religion, because even though we're a department of philosophy, religious studies, I'm a philosopher. What I am is a Jew. What I am is a practicing Jew who has studied a lot of Judaism. And most of the students have never met a Jew before in their life. So I go in, our, our old friend used to call it a pop-up Jew. I go in as the pop-up Jew and I present my Jewishness to the students and they get to ask me any question that they want. And one of the questions that students always ask is some version of why don't I believe in Christianity? Why am I Jewish? And my answer is threefold. My answer is, first, Jews are monotheists and Christians are not. That's a conversation that I, I want to have with the students. The second is that Isaiah doesn't prefigure Jesus. That's a biblical conversation we have. And the third one I say is, because it's not true. And what I mean by that is, as a Jew, my worldview is that Jesus was not the Messiah, therefore Christianity is not true. Now, if I were teaching in a sixth grade class, if I went into a sixth grade class, I wouldn't say that. If I were in a sixth grade class, I'd say Jews believe that the Messiah has not come and I would depersonalize it. But because I want the college students to understand that Jews are real people and that conflict of belief is real, I say this not this controversial, this, this, this direct in-your-face statement. Mm -hmm. Christianity isn't true. Now, suppose someone was offended by that and said, Professor Weinstein came into my class and said Christianity isn't true. Shouldn't I be protected for that? Why? Because I was a guest in the class representing my Jewishness to a class whose purpose was to understand what it means to be Jewish and to meet a Jewish person. But if someone's offended by that, then that could put my job at risk unless I have academic freedom. That is a simple example of things that happen every single day because sometimes professors say things just to challenge people. I say things I don't believe in class all the time. I bring challenging ideas all the time. I teach, you know, 50 different philosophers and each philosopher says that the, all the philosophers before them were wrong. So we're supposed to keep our students in a state of uncertainty, in a state of critical analysis, in a state of 
a certain kind of vulnerability. And academic freedom in the classroom allows us to do that. If we ha- if we face these pressures, if we didn't have tenure, we wouldn't be able to teach. You brought up how you would change this discussion if you were in an elementary school. How is academic freedom different for people who work in higher ed versus elementary students? What would it be if she told a second grader, oh, you can walk out of the classroom if you don't want to see Muhammad versus a college student who's technically an adult? It's a whole different thing because the younger the kids are, the less agency they have and the more vulnerable they are. So most second grade students aren't going to be able to walk out of the class. They'd be embarrassed. They'd be um, scared. They wouldn't understand it anyway. And it's just not a nice thing to do to kids. Let me give you another example that's that's sort of counterintuitive. Choir. There is choir in schools from kindergarten up through uh, all through college. In college, you are allowed to have explicitly religious songs in choir because the students who are over 18 and, as you said, technically adults, are old enough and are expected to be strong enough and have a have a, 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 a sense of their own self to be able to say, this makes me uncomfortable, I'm not going to sing it, or it's just a song. And the fact that it celebrates a God I don't believe in, that's okay, I'm just singing a song. Right. You know, if 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 Black Sabbath sings about the devil, you know, almost every reasonable listener is going to know that it's art and it's not worshiping the devil. Right. But in second, third, fourth, fifth grade, the kids can't tell the difference between a lesson and a song. And they don't have that sense of agency and they don't know why they have the religious beliefs they have. So you can actually you're, you are not permitted to have songs of explicit religious um, denominational content the younger grades that you are in the older grades. So our job is to protect people according to the appropriateness of their age. A sixth grader, a fourth grader, a second grader, they need more protection. And that means the teacher has less freedom. The teacher has to abide by curriculum that is approved by the school board. They're observed a lot. They have to have lesson plans. The school picks the textbook. The school gives different, you know, uh, acceptable readings or things like that. But by the time you're in college, the university does not approve anything I do. I pick the books. I write the syllabus. I do the readings. No one would ever step in and tell me what to teach in my class. And that's because my students are adults. And if they want to leave, they can leave. Jack, earlier in this conversation, you mentioned that um, universities have a role, a responsibility in accommodating students. You gave the example of if a test is on a Jewish high holiday, then that student needs to be uh, able to be away from class without it having without it being counted against him or her. So let me ask you this, though. What does it mean that the school calendar allows for, even if they don't call it Christmas break, they call it winter break, Christmas is off, but it doesn't necessarily follow calendars of other major religions. I mean, this is this is what it means to live in a majority Christian country. 
And I don't always like it. And sometimes it really makes me mad. But it's the world we live in. And if you go to schools that are in more diverse areas, let's say if you're looking at colleges and universities in New York, they often have the high holidays, the Jewish high holidays off, uh, not just make accommodations, but you know, a school like NYU, which has a huge Jewish population, New York University has a huge Jewish population, so they'll just shut down the school on those days, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, so it depends. And if you are in a heavily Hispanic school, uh, they're going to be different kind of calendar events and different kinds of things because you have to cater to the student population that you have. There are universities that uh, not necessarily in the United States, although there are a few. In Europe, what they actually do is they have the semester and then they have the break, which is a lot shorter, and then they have their final exams after the break. So there are lots of ways to do it. But yeah, I mean, I live in a Christian majority country and the calendar is going to follow the Christian calendar. Now, let me give another example that I think is, is a little more intuitive. We also live in a country where the majority of people can walk, where they don't have wheelchairs, and they don't need care. And that's why when you go to the bathroom, there are a whole bunch of bathroom stalls, and they're all small except for one. One stall is big because it allows for a wheelchair or a caregiver to go in to the stall so that the person can use the toilet. Now, we believe, I hope, that access to toilets is a right that everyone should have and that any institution like a university should make sure that any student has the ability to access the toilet when they need. So it is true that a person in a wheelchair could go into a bathroom and say, it is not fair that there are four stalls that I can't get into and one stall that I can Maybe that isn't fair, but the accommodation that we've made for people in wheelchairs or people who have other needs who live in a majority country where most people are able-bodied or where their disabilities or lack of abilities, I should say, I don't, I don't know how to use the term these days, um, allows them to use smaller spaces. It's the same thing. It's just the reality of the situation. Most of UND students, for example, are either practicing Christians or were raised in some sort of Christian ethos and Christian calendar. And that's the way the school is going to be, just like most people walk and most people can use toilets. It's exactly the same thing, whether it's religion, whether it's able-bodiedness, whether it's um, personal beliefs, whether it's skill level, you're going to do the thing that is most efficient And then you have to accommodate for the exceptions. Jack, you mentioned that you say controversial statements in class on purpose. Do you frame that to your students as this is your opportunity to exercise academic freedom and have an argument? Or do you just say it and see how they respond? (laughs) Um, I don't know that I've ever really had the conversation in terms of academic freedom. I do have a very explicit disclaimer on my syllabus that says things like, you know, there's gonna, we're going to talk about drugs, we're going to talk about sex, we're going to talk about politics. If these things are problematic for you, you might want to reconsider the class. One of the other things I say in this explicit uh, disclaimer and that I do say to the students at the beginning is that classroom is theater. 
that the Jack that they see in front of them is not necessarily the real Jack. And that I'm going to say things and defend things that I don't necessarily believe. My job isn't to indoctrinate my students. My job is to get them to think and, and to get and to undermine their set of beliefs. That's what a philosopher does. <laughs> now, what I do say is that they can hit me as hard as I hit them and that they have the, the right to, to challenge. And I never, ever grade anyone on their opinion. And I have this whole thing. Sometimes we read stuff that I write and I always say, you know, I can take it. My, my ego can take the criticism. It's not a problem. Now, why is this important? It's, it, it's important to get people in that critical frame of mind, but it's also important because the students come in they're tired. The students come in and they want to text. The students come in and they, 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 you know, they don't care. Some of them do and some of them don't. Some of them are forced to take the class because there's a general education requirement and some of them love to take the class. And I have to keep their attention. I'm competing with everything in the world. I'm competing with sports. I'm competing with pornography. I'm competing with alcohol. I'm competing with everything for their attention. And ultimately, the job of shocking students is much more about the job of keeping them present so that they become active learners rather than passive learners. And I don't think that a teacher should be punished because they use appropriate and professional methods to shock students. I think that if they cross a line and I have, you know, come close to a line in my life in front of a classroom. And, and every once in a while I'll say, oh, that was over the line. I apologize or something like that. I'm very honest with my students. I tell them when I don't know things and I talk about my mistakes and all that sort of stuff. So I have to figure out how to do this in a professional way. But when we are creating a disseminated knowledge, if I'm writing a journal article for another professional philosopher, I don't have to persuade them to read it. They'll read it if they want to and they won't if they won't. But when I'm talking to a 19-year-old who has no idea what the word philosophy means and doesn't understand why this class is important, then I have to figure out a way how to be what I am. I mean, even Taylor Swift, right, one of the great musical talents of our time and one of the most popular musical talents of our time even she has to put on a show even she has to wear spangly outfits even she has to have lights and fire and and all these other things and back up dancers and stuff if taylor swift can't keep their attention how am i supposed to keep their attention you know and so you do what you can do and you try your hard to be as professional as you can. Jack, one last question. You mentioned that you tell your students you're going to talk about drugs, you're going to talk about sex. You're, most of your students are 18 to 21 years old. Why aren't more college graduates philosophy majors? <laughs> um, there's lots of different reasons for that. And folks should look at philosophyisagreatmajor.com for all of the reasons why they should be philosophy majors. But... There is a lot of social pressure to not be philosophy majors because people think it's useless. The old joke is, oh, you want to be a philosophy major, you better practice saying you want fries with that. You know, when in fact, 95% of philosophy majors are employed within six months of, of graduating. But also, 
philosophy isn't for everybody. Nursing students have a lot of trouble with my classes because nursing students want answers. They want to know what the answer is. They want to know how to fix the problem. They want to know the procedure. They want a textbook and a teacher who can tell them how to do the thing that they need to do. And if they are philosophically minded, they have to separate the philosophical experience from the nursing experience because nobody wants to get their blood drawn by someone who's having an existential crisis. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's just reality. So philosophy isn't for everybody, just like nursing isn't for everybody. So we have general education introductory classes where the students get to try different things. They get to be a chemist for a semester. They get to be a painter for a semester. They get to be a philosopher for a semester. They get to be an engineer for a semester. And then they decide what they want to do and they get to spend more time doing it because that is the benefit of a comprehensive university like the University of North Dakota. A comprehensive university has... 150 different majors and twice as many programs and students get to experiment in those four years so they can figure out what they want to do. And if you have a congress member or a parent or a pastor who is looking over their shoulder and saying, don't do this. This is the path to the devil or don't do that. Liberals only do that or don't do that. You're never going to get a job. If someone is hanging over their shoulder, telling them not to experiment, we are taking away four of the most interesting, exciting and valuable years of their lives. And the last thing that anyone should be permitted to do is punish a professor because they are trying to give their child or their voter uh, an opportunity to explore things that they may never have the opportunity to explore again. Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota for this month's Philosophical Currents. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure as always. Dakota Datebook is next. Well, that last question was actually a joke.